Good morning from James Ross and from uh, Money Talk. Our guests this morning are Andrew Sullivan, the founder of Asian Market Sense, and Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manulife Investment Management. Uh, good morning, guys. Uh, nice to have you both on. Um, Andrew, let's start uh, with this uh, seemingly good news about uh, GDP in the US. What are your thoughts on that? Surprised? Oh, yeah, I mean, it came in much stronger than I think everybody was expecting, to be honest. Um, and I think it, 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 it almost offers that golden solution of uh, the perfect landing for the Fed if, uh, if it continues. Uh, but it is only one data point, and I think we'd want to see a, a couple more um, confirmatory factors. Uh, and the fact that, uh, obviously, in the, uh, the personal consumption expenditure data, there's also slowing, showing that inflation was slowing. Um, the Fed must be sitting pretty pleased, but I don't think they're going to just take one data point at this stage. Janet Yellen certainly sound uh, happy about it, Mark, in the clip we paid, played earlier on. Your thoughts on this? Yes, I mean, if you look at the, the health of the consumer, they continue to spend quite freely. That was a big driver of the strong GDP number in Q4. We saw that retail sales growth finished the year strongly. House price growth is re-accelerating. The jobs market is relatively tight, although there's some signs of loosening at the margin. And the stock market is buoyant. So all the wealth effects and the sentiment drivers are in place. That being said, though, the idea that um, you know, the current economic um, situation has favoured the middle class strongly is a bit is a bit of a you know a, a challenging statement to agree with because inflation over the last two three years has been very very powerful and even though the year on year growth rate inflation is now much more modest in terms of price levels they're something like 25 percent higher than where they were pre-COVID and so there definitely has been a, um, a, a a purchasing power hit to the middle class in America and and globally as well. Is that going to spread good news uh, uh, around the world? And, you know, obviously Hong Kong so closely linked to the US. Uh, are we, anything going to be reflected here or in our region, do you think, Mark? I think equity market performance over the last few weeks has been quite encouraging in the US. And that has effectively uh, spilt over into other markets such as Europe and Japan. I think that the Hong Kong China equity markets have been following their own cycle um, yeah, the last few days have brought more cheer as a result of the suggestion that the PBOC and other policymakers will effectively try to stabilise financial markets. That has uh, led to a bit of a bid being captured, at least short covering, but it, it's following a different cycle. And there's been some pronounced reallocation away from Hong Kong China equities towards other regional markets, such as Japan and India, in the last one or two years. Maybe that pauses now, but we need to see more follow through and decisive and concrete actions. Uh, do you think that, uh, you know, the, it's only in China and uh, Hong Kong that there has been this enthusiasm, Mark, about the stimulus um, that has been put in place this week by uh, mainland authorities? Are we going to see some enthusiasm from foreign investors getting back into the China market as a result of that? At the very least, I think it will make global investors pause to the idea that shorting this market is easy. We've definitely seen a bit of a short squeeze in the last few days, and, and you may well see that continue for some time longer. The next step would then be, do you see real money coming in to outright buy the market? I think we're still some way away from that. And it goes back to the point that we do want to see some decisive, concrete action towards market stabilisation rather than just hearsay. Although the triple R cut was, was well received, that had been something that had been mooted for some time, and, and the previous weekend it didn't happen, and that led to some disappointments.
I mean, that was a big uh, injection of funds effectively into the market, wasn't it? So you'd hope it would have some, some impact. What we want to see is the credit multiplier pick up. So obviously liquidity is, is the first step. The second step is how does that translate into higher economic activity, either via the extension and the demand for credit or just outright economic growth? There we still see a picture of subdued household and business sentiment. That's going to take a bit more effort to shift. And one of the key drivers of that will be it trying to turn around the real estate cycle. There aren't signs that that is happening imminently. We still see month-to-month price deflation in housing across the 17 major cities. There's still a supply-demand imbalance that requires a reset. But policymakers there are effectively trying to backstop what they define as quality developers to make sure that the supply side and those developers that are on sound footings can continue to to operate and thrive through through what is going to be a difficult few years to come. Andrew, what are your thoughts on uh, China at the moment? We, you, you, we have had this rally uh, this week. Um, you know, is there going to be some enthusiasm around the world for it? I don't think so, no. I think we're still waiting to see you know, the reality of policy change. Uh, and at the moment, we've got too much of presently putting party politics ahead of economics. Uh, and... Uh, the failure to, to you know, resolve that property situation uh, is going to overhang the market. And, of course, you have to remember that you know, in household terms, 60% of their wealth is tied up in property. So you know, if they're worried about those prices going down, as, as Mark was just saying, you know, they're not going to go out and spend. Uh, and, of course, one of the things that you know, G is keen on is you know, domestic consumption. But it doesn't work that way in China. And I think until we see some radical changes on policy, then there's not going to be much enthusiasm. And, of course, you also have to remember, as Mark said, is the fact that actually other markets are looking a lot more attractive. You know, in, in the time when uh, global interest rates were at zero, then China looked very attractive. But now that U.S. interest rates are at 4 or 5%, it's looking a lot less attractive and with a lot more risk. Now, turning to uh, one industry which has been growth uh, in China uh, over the last couple of years, and that is the electric vehicle industry, um, Tesla has seen its, uh, its stocks drop 12% today, um, saying that perhaps they've overestimated uh, demand for these products, um, particularly in the US. Uh, Andrew, is that something that, um, you know, is going to have a big effect, one on China, but also on, you know, whether the, the EV industry can really grow at the continued uh, rates that it's been, it's been seeing? I think you're right. I don't think it continues to grow at the rates that we've seen. I think the other problem that we have is the fact that, again, because China doesn't operate under normal supply and demand rules. Uh, the fact that Beijing, a couple of years, said this was going to be a strategic industry, you know, every state wanted its own EV element, uh, and there's been massive oversupply. I think currently they reckon that China could cope with 75% of the global demand. Um, now, that's obviously not going to happen, partly because a lot of countries are, are fearful of importing cheap cars from, from China. Uh, the EU is conducting a probe at the moment. Um, whereas, in fact, in many respects, it, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea. I mean, we did see this when places like Hyundai and Kia started exporting that people were very worried. But now they're accepted and they've moved a lot of plants overseas. But the political situation has changed. Uh, and I think you know, that's going to be a problem going forward for China. But it is a, a globally problem because you know, people aren't taking up combust- aren't taking up EVs 
as quickly as thought. And a lot of that is because the charging networks are very expensive to expect, you know, to, to implement into a lot of countries. Now, obviously, Japan seems to have benefited from China's woes in the last couple of years. And, um, you know, the Nikkei has been at a high. What, what are your thoughts there? You know, is it still uh, an opportunity for investors, do you think, Andrew? I think it certainly is. I mean, we, uh, there's a thing, as Mark said earlier, there's been a lot of money reallocated to Japan. And I think ever since Warren Buffett went in there, a lot of people have been giving it a, a, a close look over. And I think, again, we're seeing that people now want to look at portfolios which are ex-China and include Japan, rather than ex-Japan and including China. The current pullback over the last few days, it's just a few percent, but it does give people an opportunity um, and we're expecting policy to be normalised. The, the, the yen is still relatively cheap, uh, and I think yeah, there's an awful lot of upside. Uh, plus the fact that for a lot of the companies that you invest in China, you can still have exposure to China so that you're getting the best of both worlds. Mark, turning to um, uh, other news events, the conflict in the in the Middle East uh, continues, and it seems that it still has uh, quite an effect on uh, global shipping. What are we going to see there? Are we going to see goods uh, go- prices rising as a result around the world of these uh, ongoing uh, problems with the ships being attacked? It's a good question, Jane. So one of the things that we've noticed is that jewellery um, composite container rates have, have basically more than doubled in the last couple of months. So the, the cost of shipping a, a 40-foot container from east to west has doubled to in excess of $3,000 per, per container. Um, that, if, if the conflict and, and the uncertainty in the Red Sea Channel persists, that will eventually find its way through to goods prices, um, not with a, with a clear line of sight, ultimately with a lag. Uh, and therefore, we could see a bit of a pickup and a knock-on effect for, for goods inflation, probably from the middle of this year onwards. And one of the reasons why globally inflation has come down quite sharply last year has been because goods inflation has been in and around zero. It's really helped the, the matter out. Whereas if you start to see goods inflation tick up back into positive territory, that might be a, a bit of a quandary for central banks later this year because the assumption is that they'll continue to be able to cut interest rates pretty much in a straight line, whereas if goods inflation starts to move higher again and as a result wholesale inflation does does um, pick up again, then it becomes a challenging picture in terms of where, where interest rates should be set. And when we're, so, we're so dependent, aren't we, of course, on uh, container shipping and uh, COVID affected it. Uh, the conflict uh, now is affecting it. Everything seems to uh, affect those shipping prices and the ongoing uh, goods prices. Well, thank you very much to Mark Franklin, uh, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manulife Investment Management. And also thank you to Andrew Sullivan, the founder of Asian Market Sense. Uh,